When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In what was likely the last moments of his warty little life, Paddock the Toad went bravely into the Weird Sister's cauldron. Said the first witch, Thrice the brindled cat hath mewed. Said the second witch, Thrice and once the hedge pig whined. Said the third witch, Harpier cries, Tis time, tis time. Heeding her sister's call, the first witch chanted as she stirred their pot and added ingredients to its bubbling contents. Round about the cauldron go, in the poisoned entrails throw. Toad that under cold stone days and nights has thirty-one. Sweltered venom sleeping got, boil thou first in the charmed pot. Together they sang, double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. So opens Shakespeare's Macbeth. Believed to have been penned in 1606 amidst the witch panics that seized England and sent thousands of women and men to their deaths. Lots of gnarly ingredients were thrown into the witch's brew, but it is poor paddock that we care about today. Toads, like dogs and cats, were depicted in the 16th and 17th centuries as the most common companions for witches. Paddock apparently was made to sit under a cold stone for 31 days so he would produce enough poison on his skin to make the weird sister's potion uber potent. A servant of the witches, whose purpose was to help them stir up trouble and cause harm in their enemies, Paddock is representative of the many familiars of English witch lore. Some were conjured by witches, some sent by the devil to tempt women into malfeasance. Some were supposed to be the devil himself in the form of a common black dog. Whatever their origin and intent, familiars were not just background characters in English witch trials. They were presented as evidence and used to sentence hundreds, perhaps thousands, of people to death for witchcraft in England. Not so in France or Denmark or Italy. It was only in England that the familiar significance was codified in law. Why, you ask? Great question. Let's find out. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Sarah Hanley-Cousins. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. (laughs) 
Welcome back, listeners. We want to thank you for subscribing and supporting us over the last five years. Our Patreon supporters keep this history excavation team digging, and we owe the most to our fabulous auger and excavator level patrons. Lauren, Edward, Iris, Denise, Susan, Agnes, Peggy, Colin, Maddie, Maria, Jesse, and Hannah. We cannot thank you enough. Listener? If you are not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that each of our episodes relies on the research and writings of historians and other scholars. You can find a full bibliography plus footnotes and links for every episode in our show notes on our website, digpodcast.org. And don't forget, if you're interested in something you heard today, please check out these excellent books and articles. A couple years ago, I wrote an episode on the Beresford Witch Trials, in which three women, Joan Flowers and her daughters, were charged with witchcraft. Joan died on her way to the prison to await trial, and her daughters, Margaret and Philippa, were subjected to the usual torture until they confessed to all kinds of misdeeds, including feeding their pet cat, Rudderkin. At the time, Sarah and I joked about how just being a normal person, having a pet, or going for walks in the woods, or owning a cooking pot could be used as evidence of witchcraft. We had a lot to cover at the time, so we didn't spend much time on Rudderkin, other than what a great cat name it is, (laughs) or the concept of animal familiars, their role in witch trials, and their origins in the cosmology of the early modern world. So when someone, Marissa, requested a series on (laughs) animals... I knew it was finally time. Yep. We all were like, Marissa, we don't care about animals. (laughs) (laughs) And yet here we are doing all of these episodes. Anyway, admittedly, familiars were not always described as taking the form of ordinary animals. Sometimes they were weird mythical beasts like dogs with the faces of men and little cloven hooves. Sometimes they were straight up just people, men or cute boys or little women. But ordinary animals, dogs, cats, various rodents and weasels, toads, and occasionally larger animals, were the most common creatures identified as familiars. And that's most likely because when a witch was on trial, a witness was more likely to see a woman with her goats or pet cat than a winged beast with baby hands and a ruffled shirt that screamed obscenities and suckled from her neck. So in that way, this episode is and isn't strictly about animals, but it's good enough for government work. For those of us who grew up on Harry Potter, witches' familiars are loyal, brave, perhaps magical creatures that throw themselves in front of Voldemort's curses or chase evil rat-shaped minions. In His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman, the witches' familiars are their demons, basically their souls that take animal form, which is true of all humans in that world, but are special because unlike most demons, they can fly along, you know, witches' demons can fly long distances from their humans without pain. These creatures both are and are not like the familiars of early modern England. Their companionship signals belonging to the magical world. In J.K. Rowling's Wizarding World, the animals have some preternatural abilities, like owls that magically deliver letters without homing pigeon training, but are also built into the Hogwarts boarding school culture as students are encouraged to bring a pet. 
Crookshanks the cat, Hedwig the owl, and Neville's toad Trevor are all the kinds of animals that would have appeared in 17th century English witch trials. In Lyra's Oxford, where demons grow and change with their human counterparts, the witch's demon's ability set them apart from most people, which makes sense because the witches themselves live apart from most humans, flying on cloud pine brooms and only consorting with other people on occasion, usually for good sex. That apartness would undoubtedly have been familiar in the European witch trials as well. But witches' familiars, and particularly English witches' familiars, from the 14th through the 18th century were not extensions of witches or loyal companions meant to ease one into life at boarding school. In early modern England, a witch's familiar was an intermediary with Satan. It was usually a shape-shifting creature that might present as the cat Rudderkin in the morning, but walk into the woods at night a handsome, strapping man dressed in black. Rawr. According to Helen Parrish, the phenomenon of the familiar being deployed as evidence of Maleficarum is one unique to English witch trials in the early modern world. Though certainly animal companions themselves are not unique to the English witches. Indeed, as Isaac Newhouse demonstrates, the witches of Transvaal Lowveld in 1930s uh, South Africa were associated with a number of animal familiars, ranging from polecats and skunks to owls and elephants. Though occasionally animal companions and familiars popped up on the continent at the same time, it was only in England that cavorting with familiars was a consistent element in witch trials. So there are a few things we want to explore today. First, why just England? Which is a really hard question to answer. Second, how England developed the system for identifying witches by their familiars. And finally, how familiars function in English witch trials. So why England? As noted by historian Helen Parrish, our understanding of witchcraft in early modern Europe comes from several sources, court records, although these are often sparse, laws, and pamphlets. The pamphlets in particular, written and distributed during and after witch trials, are our most robust and colorful sources for the period. Some even had woodcut illustrations, which helped shape our modern view of the archetypal witch. While these publications were often embellished or exaggerated for effect, they remain useful in examining what commoners believed to be the character, practice, and ideas about witchcraft in this period. According to the many historians of early modern European witchcraft, including Emma Wilby and Charlotte Rose Miller, the familiar was a particular feature of English witch trials, as described in pamphlets and later in English law. Of course, familiars were reported occasionally in early modern Germany, Iceland, France, Ireland, etc. In the 19th and 20th century, familiars became more widespread as characters and tales of witches across Europe and North America. But during the first waves of witch panics, familiars were specific to English witch beliefs. Historian Charlotte Rose Miller notes that familiars were demonic spirits raised through circle magic to aid witches in their deeds on Earth. When the notion of a familiar came into the English public imagination is impossible to pinpoint. But one theory is that familiars are simply the recycling of fairy folk in a Christian world. Emma Wilby suggests that the similarities between familiars and fairies is unmistakable. In both lines of folklore, both fairies and familiars were shapeshifters and could take the form of common animals, mythical beasts, or humans. They could be bad, good, or ambivalent, and they could work for a human or seek to enslave a human. More obviously, Wilby notes, the naming conventions of fairies and familiars were just a little too on the nose. Familiars with names like Tom Twit, Vinegar Tom, and Thomas a Fairy 
were just a little too close to fairies like Tom Reed, Tom Tumblr, Tom Thumb, and Tom Tittop. Same for familiars named Willet when there were Will-o'-the-Wisp fairies or familiars named Great or Little Browning and fairies known as Brownies. A second and not necessarily mutually exclusive theory that Miller points to is the broader tradition of demonic magic that was popular in the Middle Ages. According to James Sharp, the familiar might be a, quote, folklorized version of the demons and other denizens of the spiritual world, which the learned magicians of the Middle Ages were meant to be able to raise, end quote. Of course, this explanation does little to explain the commonness of familiars in England and not elsewhere, but it's useful for understanding what kinds of ideas were circulating about how such creatures could be summoned, used, and banished. In the English public discourse, familiars often served as a mediator between a witch and the devil. Borea Sachs suggests that this is because of the continental witches alleged to entreat directly with Satan at Sabbaths in the mountains or deep in the forests. Already by the middle of the 16th century, England was running out of wood, with much of the island deforested to build towns, villages, and then cities, and to keep homes warm in the Little Ice Age. There were no mountains to retreat to. By that logic, English witches had no plausible mode of communicating discreetly with the devil. Never mind that Carlo Ginzburg's study of the Benendanti of Italy suggests that witches did most of their fighting and flying or traveling via their dreams. That, that is neither here nor there. But with an animal that really wouldn't seem too out of place in or around a regular person's home, a witch could communicate directly or indirectly with Lucifer, make deals, and procure services. It's hard to make generalizations about familiars in English witchcraft because of the ambiguousness and conflicting accounts of familiars. In 16th and 17th century England, people accused of witchcraft, those cunning men and women who practice the magical healing arts, or just like regular people, use a range of words interchangeably to describe the devil, i.e. Lucifer, and devils, his demons or representatives in hell and on earth, and the various spirits, sprites, imps, and the like that were then presumed by the clergy and the government to be devils. For example, Helen Clark, uh, a, a woman tri accused of witchcraft, was tried in 1645, quote, confesseth that about six weeks since the devil appeared to her in her house in the likeness of a white dog, and that she calleth that familiar Elemanzer. Rebecca West told this informant that the devil appeared to them in the shape of a dog, afterward the shape of two kitlins, then in the shape of two dogs, and that the said familiars did do homage in the first place to the said Elizabeth Clark and skipped up into her lap and kissed her, end quote. In this case, Lucifer himself seems to have taken on the form of animals to appear before Helen Clark. But it could just as well be that she's using the devil generally, as in that devil that you refer to appeared before me, rather than Satan himself appeared before me. But in either interpretation of the source, the deployment of animal form, discreet, or perhaps because to see a devil or Lucifer himself in their true form would dam damage what you know, mentally, that would be very shocking. All this reinforces the centrality of the familiar in English witch lore. Why? We don't have a grimoire to point to the moment when familiars entered the lexicon of English witch practices. But historians offer several plausible and intersecting reasons for the English to assign familiars as go-betweens in the diabolical witch lore. 
One contributing factor that needs more academic investigation is the Brewster story that we discussed like a million years ago. Um, You might recall that many of the markers of the witches we know today, things like brooms, cauldrons, ugliness, cats, rats, and brews and brewing, were actually features of the Brewster woman who got pushed out of the industry when it became profitable enough for men to want to do that work. Typical. Mm Mm-hmm. Those features of women's work were lambasted in print culture in the 15th and 16th centuries to drive women out of beer brewing and associated those necessary tools of brewing with witchcraft was an effective tool for keeping women out of that work. So have another listen to that episode or better yet, pick up a copy of Judith Bennett's book, Ale, Beer and Brewsters in England, and use that as a starting point to write your own thesis or dissertation about witches and beer in early modern England. Boreas Sachs suggests that there's a religious element to the familiar's place in English witchcraft. Animal companions were a common feature in both pagan and Christian mythology. As we already mentioned, the fair folk of Celtic mythology included a number of shape-shifting fae. Some were mischievous, some were helpful, some sought to trick or trap humans. Leaving offerings or feeding a brownie or other imp was common in Celtic lore. They might serve a greater master, like a fairy king or queen, a.k.a. a devil, or serve as intermediaries between the human world and the fairy world. In the ancient world, many gods had animal avatars and or mascots. According to Sachs, quote, Zeus was accompanied by an eagle, Athena by an owl, Artemis by a deer or stag, Odin was accompanied by two wolves and two ravens, while Thor was accompanied by two goats, end quote. In Greek mythology, Zeus appeared as an animal frequently, usually for sexual congress with human women, a bull, a satyr, a swan, or an eagle. According to Sachs, the French jurist Jean Baudin, quote, believed that pagan deities such as Jupiter, Bacchus, or Ceres had often been disguises for the devil, end quote. These parallels and broader themes of European entanglement or engagement with deities and devils and the centrality of animals in those stories points to the deeper roots of familiars and English understandings of magic, but again, does little to differentiate the English from the rest of the continent. If ancient Greek and Celtic traditions incorporated animal avatars and companions into their mythologies, why weren't those ideas passed through the ages to Italian, German, or French witch beliefs? Sachs offers one possible hypothesis that makes a lot of sense. Anti-Catholic sentiment in England. Tensions between Catholics and Protestants were at an all-time high at the same time as the witch panic in England, not coincidentally. Henry VIII broke with the Catholic Church in 1534 and made the English monarch the spiritual and political head of state. When Queen Mary, a Catholic, took the throne in 1553, she reverted the state back to Roman Catholicism and burned Protestants at the stake for heresy, earning her the nickname Bloody Mary. Mary's reign only lasted five years. When Elizabeth I took over, she created the Church of England, a moderate solution to her father's original break with Rome, wresting control of English foreign relations from Rome. As a Protestant state, she ensured that England would not be obligated to ally with other Catholic states under papal influence and secured better trading partnerships with the Dutch, who were also Protestant. But the majority of the House of Lords were Catholic, so it was with great difficulty that she established this independent church. But for some, abandoning Rome was just not an option. 
According to Alan Jerez and Francis Young, the English monarchy's rejection of Roman Catholicism largely drove English Catholics underground, lest they be punished with fines or, more severely, convicted of treason for training priests or practicing Catholicism. The penal laws passed through the 16th and 17th centuries punished Catholics for practicing their religion and denied Catholics certain political, social, and economic rights, voting, land inheritance or ownership, holding public office, teaching, and more. If you're familiar with the penal laws, you've probably heard about them in the Irish context, since the majority of the Irish population remained Catholic after England's Reformation, and those laws disproportionately impacted the Irish under you know, British rule. But obviously those laws also applied to Catholics in England, those who dared to remain openly Catholic, and the crown fostered a good deal of state-sponsored antagonism of English Catholics. Under Elizabeth I, over 100 Catholic priests were executed for treason simply because they were Catholic priests administering Catholicism to the people. Protestants, like the Lutherans, promoted the idea that one's relationship to God is direct and not reliant on the intervention of an intermediary like a priest or a pope. While Lutheranism wasn't as influential in Britain as Calvinism, and neither were at the root of Henry's Reformation, the rejection of the papacy is essential in all three reformatory religions. With the persistent anti-Catholic sentiment permeating English society from the top down, the popularization and commonness of the familiar in English witch trials might be interpreted as a shot at the Catholics. Sachs suggests that the familiar might have been more likely to show up in Protestant states more generally, but particularly in England, where the state-sponsored violence against Catholics cemented anti-Catholic sentiments. So the witch-familiar-Satan model, in which a familiar was required for a witch to communicate with Lucifer, replicated the Catholic papacy as God's intermediary on earth. Other Protestant-dominated states, like the German states or the Netherlands, weren't invested in anti-Catholic policies in the same way that the English were, with the state being the generator of the Reformatory Church, as opposed to a more grassroots movement. This condition would also explain why familiars weren't even popularized in Scottish or Irish witch trials. In both states, Catholicism was still the religion of the majority. This is not the most airtight of theories, admittedly. It's very theoretical, but it's interesting, and it's the best one I've encountered in my research, and I read as much as I could about this um, and didn't find many good reasons for why England, and this is still something, you know, mm -hmm. people are, like, in the 1970s, someone was like, we need to figure out why England is the only one that's got familiars at the center, and it's still, there's still no answer. So this mm. is just, you know, one good theory. Um, it, but even if you buy into it, it's not like this explains everything. England's rejection of Catholicism in relationship to God would have been just one factor in what developed into a language and template for understanding and accusing witchcraft in England. While the why England question is hard to answer, the how familiars entered the English system of witch belief is more clear. As Helen Parrish notes, quote, which belief in the English context is indicative of the existence of a syncretic relationship between oral tradition, judicial processes, pamphlet literature, and legislative process. This means that how witchcraft was understood in early modern England was an ever-evolving process, with ideas germinating in popular culture, the law, and academia simultaneously, converging and mixing and redefining magic and witchcraft throughout the period. 
Skeptics who didn't believe in witches, religious authorities who rejected traditional beliefs and practices, the oral traditions of folklore and storytelling, judges who established practices for identifying witches, and all manner of other people contributed to the lexicon for understanding the supernatural. Together, these forces shaped, challenged, and reshaped witch belief in England, including the centrality of familiars for identifying and prosecuting suspected witches. The first witch trial to mention a familiar was that of the Irish witch Alice Keitler in 1324. Keitler was somewhat anomalous. For one, she was Irish, and according to the records, the majority of Irish witches communed directly with Satan at a Sabbath, just like their continental sisters. And Keitler did too, though her trial records discuss a familiar, it also discusses her attendance at a Sabbath. For another, Keitler's familiar was the first mentioned in a witch trial and would remain the first until 200 years later, as familiars weren't really part of any European witch lore until the 16th century. But ultimately, her case was among the first to try witchcraft as heresy, which, according to Maeve Bridget Callan, shifted the way that heresy was dealt with in early modern Britain and Ireland. From the 15th century on, the majority of people in England convicted of heresy were laywomen, and they were specifically tried for the heresy of witchcraft. That kind of legal precedent would be important as the English jurists, clergy, kings, and laypeople developed a common blueprint for seeing and dealing with unruly women, heretics, and witches, and people who were all three at once. In English witch trials, prosecution presented an individual's relationship with an animal as evidence of malfeasance. An animal familiar could take all kinds of forms. The most popular were dogs, cats, rats, and toads. We'll talk later about how interactions with familiars were discussed, but I'm sure you're already thinking, duh, dogs and cats were pets. So of course people would have seen the accused with those animals all the time. But the catch is that keeping pets actually wasn't normalized yet among commoners. Medieval and early modern Europeans had very different relationships with animals than post-industrial peoples do today. Today, people can spend most of their lives with little to no contact with animals unless they choose to adopt a pet or visit someone who has pets. Maybe they'll see a squirrel frolic across a park path or encounter a rat sniffing around their garbage can. But our interactions with animals are limited and curated today. In 16th century English villages, animals were part of everyday life. Horses, cattle, sheep, goats, chickens, and all manner of livestock would just be hanging out in towns and cities on the streets, not relegated to farms in the countryside the way that they are today. Industrialization shifted the visibility of those animals into the peripheries of society, from the raising of them through to the slaughter of them. We're very removed from the animals that feed us, and few animals work for us the way that they did in the past. In the 16th and 17th centuries, pre-industrialization, animals were part of everyday life, but not necessarily as companions. According to Boria Sachs, keeping animals as pets, as domesticated creatures fed and cared for purely for companionship and not for work, was pretty limited to the nobility in the early modern era. Of course, people had dogs and cats who lived with or near them, but dogs were for hunting or ratting, cats were for mousing, pigs and chickens and cows were for eating or producing consumables. 
This is not to say that some people didn't develop deep and loving bonds with animals in their lives. Historian Erica Fudge demonstrates that sometimes the utilitarian and ubiquitous animals of the early modern era were just as dear to their people as those animals might be to us today. It happened, but it was not common. For example, Goldilocks the cow, named in the will of Robert Jacob. For context, some men didn't even have their wives' names written down in their wills. (laughs) Just called her my wife before bequeathing her nothing of value. And here, Robert Jacob named his beloved companion Goldilocks for all the world to remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That we were just having a similar discussion, right, in the elephants episode about how certain elephants are given names. And there's very particular names recorded in some of those histories, but not all of the elephants are named. Exactly. It's, it's their yeah. kind of outliers, right? So anthropomorphizing animals would have seemed out of place for most Europeans in this period. But just as having a pet would not have been enough alone to call someone up on crimes of witchcraft, the conditions that made familiars an integral part of English witch belief were multifaceted. As Helen Parrish argues, the familiar was adopted into the English witch belief system by virtue of their position, quote, as a point of intersection between learned demonologies, popular belief, social need, and religious context. Academic and religious literature on witchcraft, demons, and the way they behaved were constantly changing and reacting to the various cases of alleged witchcraft all over Europe. As Boreas Sachs notes, a number of continental and English experts in witchcraft and demonology waxed on about familiars in the 16th century. French jurist Jean Baudin remarked that, quote, witches often have a mark of the devil on their bodies, rather like a paw print, though he cautioned against using those marks to identify witches. Of course, by the 17th century, English witch hunters like Matthew Hopkins and John Stern did just that. Charlotte Miller argues that in the 16th century, English courts made explicit links between familiars and the devil or demonic elements. This may have reflected the influence of continental writings like that of Jean Baudin. Baudin wrote that, quote, Satan, in order to deceive men, has always sought euphemisms such as a familiar spirit and white demon and little master because the words Satan and devil are odious. Why a French jurist's writings would have greater influence on the English courts than on the French courts is anyone's guess. But at any rate, that kind of language was reflected in the pamphlets that served as the most detailed accounts of the 16th and 17th century witch trials. According to those records, some witches invited the demons to serve them, as in the cases of John Walsh, Margaret Staunton, and Joan Coney. For others, the creatures appeared before them and asked them to renounce God and feed them of their own blood. As recorded in the 1579 pamphlet, A Rehearsal Both Strange and True, Elizabeth Stiles and three other women were accused of acts of witchcraft, including keeping, quote, spirits or fiends that acted like servants. The animals were said to feed on the witch's blood. There were several illustrations in that pamphlet, including one depicting an old woman with a hooked nose feeding a menagerie of small creatures from a bowl and spoon. There appears to be a rat or a cat and two giant toads, which she keeps in a box. And while these accounts may be as true as possible to the testimonies delivered in the courtroom, they may also serve to reinforce the broader message of the 16th and 17th century witch pamphlets, which regularly warned readers of the ever-increasing presence of Satan on Earth 
and his attempts to tempt the weak. As we've already mentioned, there were longer traditions of fairies and gods that took animal form already in the public imagination, which put animal familiars into the public imagination. And England's religion problem, which already invited heretical and treasonous scrutiny, made space for the familiar as a Catholic-like intermediary between a witch and Satan. All of these things amalgamated into a public discourse that cemented familiars into the witch lore of England. And as we know, the English, like most Europeans, found plenty of reasons to hit the witch panics hard. The 16th and 17th centuries were plagued by crop failures, famines, and weird weather caused by the Little Ice Age. In the strict religious context of this period, there were regular efforts by communities and authorities to punish women for existing outside of the strict gender regime of the period. As Charlotte Miller notes, quote, unmarried, widowed, or promiscuous women were viewed as objects of suspicion. And as Marissa discussed in her episode on floppy wieners, women who self-identified as wise or cunning women or who were accused of being witches were both consulted for and accused of causing sexual maladies, including impotence. So by 1604, the demonization of the witch's familiar was codified into English law. The law against witchcraft issued in 1604 in England identified as felons, quote, any person or persons who shall use, practice, or exercise any invocation or conjuration of any evil or wicked spirit, or shall consult, covenant with, employ, feed, or reward any evil and wicked spirit to or for any intent or purpose. As both Charlotte Miller and Helen Parrish note, the language of spirit here refers explicitly to familiars, which were believed to be conjured or encountered demonic entities. We can see in this law the 70 plus years of witch trial and error in the English legal system and public imagination. In addition to the invocation of a familiar, i.e. the invitation or conjuring of a familiar, if one was seen consulting with an animal familiar, feeding or rewarding, like giving him pets, I don't know, an animal, (laughs) that could be presented in a court of law as evidence of witchcraft, punishable by death. Again, things that anyone with a pet today is definitely guilty of and which would not have been a household occurrence in the 16th century, but certainly wasn't unknown. It's actually most shocking to me that they'd codify this when the nobility were more likely to keep pets as the norm Mm, exclusively mm -hmm. for companionship. But maybe this was intentional, a measure of social control for all those secret Catholics who might take it then as an implied threat. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Of course, the so-called confessions tortured out of those accused of witchcraft weren't about giving Rover a treat for bringing in the paper. Um, It is clear from the records of witch trials that magistrates and other authorities expected the accused to have a familiar and led questioning toward that end. One of the most common modes of extracting confession was sleep deprivation. After three days of no sleep, an individual like Margaret Flower could confess convincingly to having seen any manner of creatures in her cell, as when she claimed that, quote, about uh, the 30th of January, four devils appeared to her in Lincoln Jail at 11 or 12 o'clock at midnight. The one stood at her bed's feet with a black head like an ape and spoke to her, but what she cannot well remember, at which she was very angry because he would speak no plainer and let her understand his meaning. 
The other three were Rutterkin, Little Robin, and Spirit, but she never mistrusted them, nor suspected herself until then. Margaret Flower was on trial and undoubtedly had been pushed to confess by her imprisoners. If you already listened to our episode about cunning folk in the Flowers trial, you may recall that two other cunning women involved in the Flowers trial revealed their relationships with familiars readily, probably because they weren't at risk of trial. It was just Joan Flowers and her daughters who were suspected of malfeasance. Joan Willamot claimed that she had a familiar, which she called Pretty, which, quote, was given unto her by William Barry of Langholm in Rutlandshire, whom she served three years, and that her master, when he gave it unto her, willed her to open her mouth, and he would blow into her a fairy, which should do her good, and that she opened her mouth, and he did blow into her mouth, and that presently, after his blowing, there came out of her mouth a spirit, which stood upon the ground in the shape and form of a woman, which spirit did ask of her her soul, which she then promised unto it, being willed unto by her master. She further confesseth that she never hurt anybody, but did help diverse that sent for her. Oh, my. my. gracious. Lots of blowing into each other's mouths. Oh, the sex. <laughs> Many of the people who were made to confess to convorting with spirits or who believed that they did indeed cavort with creatures that represented fairies or devils or other entities, attempted to cast their relationships with familiars in a positive light. Joan Wilmot was not on trial. She was a witness who was supposed to prove her knowledge of witchcraft to then provide evidence that Joan Flowers and her daughters were bad witches. Since she had no one accusing her of using her relationship with a familiar for evil, she did as she was bade while asserting that she only used her familiar for good works. Cunning folk who commanded enough power in their communities were not often the ones put on trial. Those on the periphery with little social capital bore the brunt of violent examination. In some ways, Joan Willamot is particularly unique because she confessed to consulting with a familiar in a court of law, but faced no consequences herself. For those who confessed to such activities, the consequences were typically dire. In the narratives that the English courts constructed to convict women and men of witchcraft, and that the recording pamphlets elaborated on, told grotesque stories of evil intentions, sexually explicit, bestial interactions, and willful interaction with the devil. Much like the inversion of the Catholic papal intermediary, the descriptions of witches' relationships with their familiars preyed on the sexual and gender anxieties of the early modern English world. The familiar witch relationship was an inversion of motherhood. A familiar was said to need the blood of a witch to form a bond and to seal the deal with the demon or devil that it represented. Sometimes this required that a witch prick her finger and feed the creature a drop of blood whenever demanded. Sometimes, as in Philippa Flower's descriptions of Rutterkin, there was an even more erotic character to the familiar's suckling. In the pamphlet that recorded the Flower's trial in Lincolnshire, England, Philippa claimed that, quote, she often saw the cat Rutterkin leap on her mother's shoulder and suck her neck. Philippa and Margaret testified that their mother would rub the items of their enemies on Rutterkin's belly or back in order to curse the intended victim. The suckling familiar, which nourishes itself from the witch's body, is clearly a gross version of the mother-child relationship. The witch-familiar relationship was also highly eroticized. 
Charlotte Miller argues that, quote, the demon familiar is a trickster, tempter, and betrayer who was intimately involved in attempting to reinvent women as lustful witches in league with the devil. In a 16th century pamphlet chronicling the trial of Joan Prentice and her familiar Bid, there's an illustration that shows Bid sucking blood from Joan's cheek while Joan cups her breast and reaches her hand toward her crotch. We don't see any nudity in this woodcut, but Joan's legs are bared and her dress is hitched up. Miller also notes that in the 16th and 17th centuries, witches were also referred to as lewd women, harlots, whores, and strumpets, which suggests that the English saw these women and their bestial relationships with familiars in sexualized terms. In a period when animals were being moved out of dwellings shared with humans because of anxieties about bestiality, the witch's characterization as having those sexual relationships with their familiars fit in with a narrative of wrongness and problematicness. Problematicness. It's a word. I made it up. <laughs> so two years ago, we made a joke about how we would be brought up on witchcraft charges because we have pots for cooking and we talk to men that we aren't married to and we consult with our pets regularly. Um, your pet is there with you in the room, I'm assuming. My pet is also here with me in the room. Uh, and in some ways, this wasn't actually a joke, right? At least in England, consulting with a pet could be presented as evidence of witchcraft. But of course, it's much more complicated than that. Daily interactions with animals were different in the 16th and 17th centuries. Belief in fairies and devils as entities and not figurative morality tales was more ubiquitous in the early modern period. And while women are still bearing the brunt of social and sexual anxieties, you know, such as incel culture, right? A, a debates about abortion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's much less likely that you'll be arrested just because you live alone, talk to your cat, or swear in public. And while the laws governing our nation are still shaped by the intersections of popular culture, judicial precedent, the media, and legislative process, at least in England, they don't have to worry about being arrested for consulting with and rewarding their pets, at least anymore. Thanks for tuning into this episode. We hope you uh, enjoyed and will return. Make sure that you leave us a five star review and yes, some please. nice comments on iTunes or wherever you get your listening. You should follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you can join the Dig History Pod Squad on Facebook or follow us at Dig underscore History on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and you can always send us some of your favorite familiar suckling stories or just pet photos on either of any of those those platforms and or email us at hello at digpodcast.org yes indeed and until don't we, forget our yeah. wait wait don't forget our our oh. for teachers oh, section of our website right we've got if for for our and we know that lots of educators listen and so um if you're looking for ways to use the podcast uh, or podcasting in the classroom, check out our website where we have a whole section just for teachers. Yes. That's all I wanted to say. Do that. And until next time, bye. Goodbye. Hang out with toads. Toads. This podcast was produced by the historians of DIG, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. I think it's thanks for thanks for tuning in for this episode. <laughs> As in the case of John Walsh? Walsh? Oh, yeah, yeah, Walsh. Okay. <laughs>
Of course, this this Fing elephants. Elephants. That is written so weirdly. <laughs> Sorry. How do you want me to say? Okay, well, you got me there. I it, it was very confused at the beginning of that paragraph, but now it makes sense. Now I, it makes I get sense. It. And that's because and blah, or who believed that they did indeed convert with spirit, convert. Ugh. And as Marissa discussed in her episode on what floppy wieners, it makes sense. Just what is it? Just what episode it. is that? I linked oh. it. Impotence. Mm-hmm. Floppy Impetus wieners. is a floppy wiener. That's what that means. Then a winged beast with. Hold it together. This is serious. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I have to not look at you. Okay. And that's most likely because when a witch was on trial, a witness was more likely to have seen a woman with her goats or pet cat than a winged beast with baby hands. <laughs> than a winged beast with baby hands and a ruffled shirt. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I'm trying really hard.